Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word this morning, and we are confident this, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words is present in our homes and our lives to make these words come alive and to mold us to be your people in truth. So bless us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the Sunday between Ascension and Pentecost, and once again we find ourselves waiting, seemingly all alone in the world. On Thursday, we celebrated Jesus' departure to his Father, and we can only imagine the kind of reception, the kind of welcome Jesus would have received, having accomplished the work that he was commissioned to do. He would have been received as a celebrated hero by angels and archangels and the entire company of heaven brought into that delightful presence of his Father's glory. But for the disciples, it's once again a time of uncertainty. And in Acts 1, a key question looms large. Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And we have to ask, is this a question marked by hopeful anticipation or by tentative tension and frustration. Okay, Jesus, are you going to do something now? Uh, we come to realize that you're alive, so, so now what? What's left to do but to restore the kingdom to Israel? It sounds like a plan. But Jesus answers in a way that must have surprised them. He says, sorry, but you don't get any insider information. The timetable for everything is set by my father. He has the legitimate authority to orchestrate world events. He sets times and epochs and seasons. However, that doesn't mean that there isn't any for, anything for them at this point. It's true Jesus is leaving. It's true that they're staying behind, but listen to what he says. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And that much must have fit well with the disciples' expectations. But then Jesus goes on. He goes, and Samaria. That was a different race, a different people. That's shocking. But if that's not enough, he says, to the end of the earth. The disciples had been pretty short-sighted, thinking only of Israel. Jesus, however, summons them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, starting at Jerusalem. So the theme for this morning's reflection is summoned to be witnesses of the ascended Christ. And we'll see three things. We'll see the summons from Acts. We'll see the challenges from Peter. And we'll see the ascended Christ's provision from John. You are my witnesses. So first of all, the summons. As we begin reading Acts, um, because we know what Acts is all about, we might be very quick to start thinking about the mission of the church at this point, but I think that would be to miss out on something essential if we don't reflect on the starting place. In Jerusalem, he says. Now, why might that be something that we need to ponder? Well, isn't that the very place where Jesus was betrayed and falsely condemned and then crucified by a mob led by religious leaders and Roman soldiers? I mean, if you wanted to start sharing the good news of God, you might have expected the commission to start at the other end, at the ends of the earth, and then if there's time, if there's money, if there's energy, 
somebody might bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. I mean, they, they clearly don't deserve it, do they? they? They knowingly, willfully crucify the Lord of glory. The one that even the centurion had recognized to be the Son of God. But Jesus says, start in Jerusalem. Start in the place where they hated me, rejected me, tortured me, nailed me to a cross. And, you know, in and of itself, that is such good news because God extends grace first and foremost to people who had the blood of the Savior on their hands. What kind of grace is that? That, that, that's amazing grace, is it not? If it had been so many of us, at least if it had been me, we would have thought twice to start where we had rejected, experienced rejection or persecution. But here's where we get a glimpse into God's heart. His love is unconditional. His grace is always undeserved. And, you know, that's good news for us because there are times when we don't think we deserve God's grace. Maybe we've resisted his offer for a new life, or perhaps we've persisted in a particular sinful habit and we've betrayed our spiritual birthright, we've rejected our covenant blessings, we've, we've pushed God into the background for so long. Maybe we haven't been faithful in prayer. And so when we start thinking about it, we think, well, I need to fix my life up first before God can begin to look at me again. But no, says Jesus, the good news is for people who need it most. It starts in Jerusalem. Or we might think that for whatever reason, you know, we shouldn't bother with a particular group of people. We write them off. I don't know, immigrants, homeless, those struggling with addictions, or on the other end of the social scale, the wealthy, or the apathetic, or the disinterested. Now granted, all of this requires some degree of training, but it would be a mistake to think that some groups are more deserving or less deserving than others are. No, says Jesus, you are my witnesses. That's the commission now, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In a legal system, witnesses receive an official summons to appear in court. You can't volunteer. It's, it's a legal letter called a subpoena that the witness cannot refuse to comply with. It's not an invitation, it's a command. You can't make excuses and say that you're too busy or you've got something more important to do. No, no, you are summoned to be a witness. And furthermore, in the court of law, the witness doesn't get to make up the story either. The witness tells what happened with accuracy. And in the, in the same way, we don't get to invent the gospel. We, we don't try to make it more interesting or leave stuff out or add some stuff in, just tell the parts that we like. No, no, the role of the witness is to faithfully tell the facts, to answer the questions. That's what the disciples are called to be. That's what we're called to be. So returning to Acts, you know, having commissioned his disciples, Jesus is lifted up out of their sight. And as Luke retells the story, he simply says, they stood there staring up into the sky. And evidently two angels come and, and ask them, so why are you just standing here looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so they return without Jesus to 
Jerusalem to wait for the gift of the Father, referring to the coming Holy Spirit. And they gather and they pray. Jesus tells them they have to wait for it. They aren't supposed to leave this city. But how do you do life without Jesus? How do you do mission without Jesus there to preach, to heal, to lead the way? There's, there's no Jesus to answer the Pharisees, to, to respond to Pilate or Herod. Oh, sure, the disciples had gone on short-term mission trips in pairs, and they had done some pretty amazing things, but Jesus was there to coach them. Now there's just a handful of them, and they've been told that they are to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, and I'm sure they couldn't even begin to imagine what that would look like. Well, we know from the book of Acts that the disciples received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but what's interesting is that at first, the disciples preferred just to stay in Jerusalem, and it's not until there's a persecution that they are scattered all over the known world. And so by the time that Peter writes his letter, there are believers exiled throughout Asia Minor. And that brings us to our second point, the, the challenges. Earlier in his letter, Peter had given them some amazing news about, about their salvation in Christ, a, a, a new birth by the resurrection of Jesus, an inheritance preserved by the power of God, a blood-bought guarantee of a sure salvation. However, the context in which these believers are to live out their faith is one of persecution, one of opposition. And so there were immense challenges that we can hardly begin to imagine from other people, from the devil himself, as Peter outlines for us. And yet, as a, a grassroots movement, these believers had, had scattered throughout Asia Minor. They had gossiped the gospel, and the church had spread. And so to encourage them, Peter writes them to remind them of what they have in Christ and to motivate them to keep on keeping on. Well, to be honest, here's where this week's texts made me squirm a bit. As you read through commentaries, it's, it's pretty obvious that commentaries, at least today, move very quickly from, well, Peter is writing to a persecuted church, uh, we're not in that situation, and so they, we need to find some kind of universal principle that helps us make application for the church today. And so I have to confess, I initially wanted to lift the words, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you, out of the context to bring us some really nice encouragement to those who us, of us who might be feeling a bit anxious because of life in a COVID-19 pandemic. But you know, the lectionary readings for this time of Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost won't let me do that with any kind of pastoral integrity. And if you get a chance, I would recommend that you read 1 Peter again this week. You know, we, we don't choose the text. The text chooses us. And living godly in, in, a, in a pagan society results in suffering. And so instead of simply noting the original context and then moving on to something to encourage us, what would happen if we asked ourselves, to what extent am I living as a witness to Jesus in both his suffering and resurrection? 
If we truly believe that Easter changes everything as we saw last week, and if the ascending Christ commissions his church to be witnesses of the resurrected Lord, wouldn't we find ourselves out of sync with mainstream society? God's agenda is quite different from the world's understanding of success and progress. And if our priorities are truly different, if we're not simply living with the same goals as mainstream society, except for the fact that we add a little bit of Jesus into our lives, if we're genuinely on mission for God, wouldn't that invite a degree of pushback? So read in a missional way, the text speaks volumes. And I suggest that the ongoing challenge for the church is to determine when to be in solidarity with the wider society and when to be an alternative community. There are surely times when the church desperately needs to join hands with everyone who seeks the well-being of society, to strengthen the social fabric, to seek the good of the city, to combat violence against women and children, to implement the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as Canadians, to fight poverty, to be concerned about key issues but to be in solidarity as followers of Jesus, as, as members of a church, not simply as a religious social club. And as those sent into the world to bear witness to the ascended Christ who is Lord of life, we're reminded that he's Lord of all of life. And yet surely there are times also and places where the very fact that the church is people of God, body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit will mean that we have a very different agenda precisely because we seek the kingdom of God first. And our, that means that our, our motivations, our values are shaped by love, by service, by sacrifice, by compassion, even when it's the more costly route to go. The church, when it's at its best, isn't about power politics. It's about downward mobility, about love on the margins. It's about faithfulness and family, in business, in our roles within the community, whatever roles those might be. And so Peter reminds us again and again that the Christian life is following Jesus. And it sounds simple, rather straightforward, don't you think, except that throughout his letter, Peter insists that the Christian life is patterned on Jesus' life, and he stresses that it, it necessarily involves suffering for the cause of the gospel. Earlier in his letter, Peter had been emphatic. He says, to this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Then in chapter 3, But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But he says, do this with gentleness. And then what we've read in chapter 4, Therefore, as Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And then later on in the chapter he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And so as he comes to the conclusion of his letter, Peter highlights four key ideas. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on God. He cares for you. Stay alert because the devil wants to devour you. Resist him. Hold your ground. Stay strong in your faith. So after stressing humility and mutual submission in the church in in chapter 5, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, under the hand of God, the Lord of history, that he may lift you up in due time. And the pattern is the one that we see in Jesus' life. Jesus makes himself of no reputation. He does not hold on to his divinity as something to be grasped for himself, but he becomes obedient in the text. And and Philippians says he humbles himself to death, even the death on the cross, so that in due time he's exalted. There's resurrection and now the ascent to God's right hand. And you know, this is not a a walk in, in the park. This is not something easy. There's opposition if we're going to do this. We can have concern for our family. Nobody likes to suffer for suffering's sake. It can be so inconvenient, but we're called to be witnesses at a cost. And so Peter directs his readers to prayer. He says, cast all your anxieties on God because God cares for you. So it would seem that there's two basic options offered to us. Either we hold on to our anxieties, we internalize them, we are crushed by them, we are overwhelmed by them, or we cast our anxieties on God. Either we struggle all alone under the weight of our calling to live as Christ's disciples in the world, or we lighten the load by handing them back to God. You can either be completely overwhelmed by daily events, daily concerns, or you can give them back to God. And note, there's no quota system. It's not rationed so that there's only one or two things that you can, you, you can give back to God that might cause you some anxiety. No, no, Peter's emphatic. All, he says, all of your anxieties. Notice, too, that it's, it's plural. He's, he's, he's writing to believers who have a shared missional life. He's talking about anxieties that we share as a congregation of redeemed people who are on mission for God to the ends of the world and to the end of time. And so what's implied, of course, is that anxieties are a part of life. That is a given, particularly as one is living on mission for God. And next he says, be alert, be of a sober mind, keep your head on straight, think clearly. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil isn't a harmless little red creature with scales, horns, and a pointed tail. His purpose is to destroy, to rip apart. In many parts of the majority world, demonic activity is, 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 is very evident. It's out in the open. But in the West, we, we don't 
seem to know what to do with Satan. So often he's either completely ignored, he's dismissed as fiction or the stuff of horror movies, or, or for some people they, they see a demon behind everything. Well, those anxieties that Peter refers to can, can hound, that hound us can, can include Satan's strategies to bring us down as well. And sometimes it can come in the form of direct temptation, persecution in some form or another because of our faithfulness to Christ. At other times, it can be indifference or apathy or why bother, who cares, and what's the point? Still other times, it can be a sly, more indirect approach where he sows doubts and fears and despair. Did God really say? If God really existed and if God is good, then, then why a pandemic? No, no, Peter says, hold your ground. Stand strong in your faith. Remember your future. Remember to whom you belong. Keep your goal in view. Well, how can we do that? I mean, seriously. He says, well, because he cares for you. He will take care of you in the middle of the challenges of living for God in a hostile or an indifferent world. So turn your anxieties into prayer and give them back to God because he cares for you. The only problem is, of course, that there's always a possibility that this just sounds nice. It's rather similar to one of those generic get well cards that Hallmark makes. Nice words, well meant, kind of make us feel good, but not really more than that. So how can we be sure? Well, that's when we need to turn to Jesus again to listen to him. And so in the third place, let's look at the ascended Christ's provision from John chapter 17. We're allowed to listen in in the upper room and it's an amazing privilege that we can be there and listen to Jesus as he gives his final teaching to the disciples before the events of Good Friday, Easter Sunday and the Ascension. And as he begins, John says that he, Jesus raises his eyes to heaven and he prays with that confidence, with that posture of a son who, who turns to his father in intimacy, freedom, and love. He's deeply conscious that he's always in his father's presence so he can simply look up. He addresses his father as, as Abba. There's that relationship that will soon be, be available to all those uh, who follow Jesus as he opens the way through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Well, as I looked at this passage, let me say that this is a particularly rich and theologically dense, dense uh, part of God's word. So allow me to distill just some main ideas into a few thoughts that might make it a little easier to remember as we live as witnesses who are summoned to, to bear witnesses to the ascended Christ. And there's three things that I think can, can, can help us. In, in the first place, God's provision takes the form of participation in the life of God. It's fascinating to, to see how when, when, when uh, John records what Jesus is saying, he, he says, you know, that, that God has granted um, us, us life. You have given eternal life to all that you have g g given him. And this is life, that they can know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
And then, and then he talks about the fact that he's been given to the son by the father. He's a treasured gift. And then, and then the son turns around and gives them back to the father as well. And th this is that one of those wonderful passages where, where you see that it's through this, this fellowship, through this knowledge of God, um, that, that we can recognize again and again that, that we're loved. And so know this morning that, that you are loved that you are the Father's gift to the Son, and, and the Son's gift back to the Father. Jesus says, all mine are yours, and, and all yours are mine. And the gift he gives is knowing God, it's life in the Spirit, through whom we too today can pray, Abba, Father. But then secondly, God's provision takes the form of the presence of Christ in their lives and witness. He says, I am glorified in them. Not I will be glorified, but I am glorified, and not just in a general way, but in them. That implies that he's actively present in our lives. You remember how in Matthew 28, when Jesus commissions the disciples there, he says, and I will be with you. I am with you. I've received all authority. I will be with you till the end of the age. And he's present in our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he enables us to be faithful, to be bold, to be gentle, to be kind, to be consistent, to be the kinds of people that he wants us to be. But I, perhaps the, the key point that we so often stress is, is that God's provision takes place takes the form of Christ's prayer, Christ's intercession for protection. Jesus is no longer in the world. Rather, he's going back to the Father, but he's deeply aware that they are still there. And in John's gospel, the idea of world is usually an idea that, that implies opposition. And so, in fact, Jesus is quite explicit. He says, while, while he was with the disciples, he protected them in his Father's name. But now that he's going back to the Father, he's asking the Father to take care of them, to keep them together, to, to invite them into that life of Trinity so that they might have Jesus' joy in them, this joy of total surrender to the Father's will. So that we can be supremely happy when persecuted or smeared, we can be blessed we share in the sufferings of Christ so that we share in his victory. That's a powerful thought. What is Jesus doing this morning, this very day, May 24th, 2020, as the ascended Son of God? He's interceding for his people. He's praying for you, and he's praying for me. And he's praying intelligently, not in sort of a generic prayer, because he's deeply aware of our situation. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And, you know, there's a particular focus. He prays for those the Father has given to him. He, he recognizes the value of every believer because they are gods. And he has two main ideas. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So the readings of John and Peter highlight the same challenge. Protect them from the evil one because the devil is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. And then he goes on to pray that we'd be kept holy, that we'd be consecrated to the Father for the purpose for which we have been called. Protect us. And finally, his conclusion, the overriding principle is so that they may be one. 
as we, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one. Unity. So you know, Satan's method is divide and conquer. God's remedy is intercession that we may be one, that we may be one, praise Jesus. So holiness and unity are not optional for the church. There are key elements that validate or authenticate our witness before a watching world. This is a key teaching for us today. We often limit Jesus' work uh, to his earthly ministry, culminating in the cross and resurrection. And yet the ascension is a crucial part of his work. He now lives to make intercession. He continues to work. He prays for you and I so that we may be faithful witnesses in this time at this place and in doing so that we may bring God's glory. Yes, there's challenges, but God's provision is more than adequate. We participate in divine life. What a privilege. We have Christ's own presence to empower our witnesses. We are not left alone. And we have Jesus' ongoing intercession. So may God help us to be faithful witnesses in a world that desperately needs to experience the kind of life that Jesus offers so that God is glorified and we can be filled with deep and lasting joy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of love. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you that we don't need to be anxious. We thank you, too, that you've called us. You've called us to be witnesses. Help us to take our call seriously, to live for your glory. May all of our lives bear witness to Christ, who is the Lord of life. And we praise you that we are never left alone. In Jesus' name, amen.